Hello and welcome to the Green Minds Podcast. I'm your host, Alec Cicletti. Nasty surprise, it's me again. We're still finalizing that interview with EU Taxonomy, so I'm back, and could not be more excited to introduce you, ahead of schedule, to Dr. Bing Jones. Bing is a former hematologist and current environmental activist. In recent years, he's been prominently involved with Extinction Rebellion in Sheffield, and when he's not painting, you'll find him acting as a member of and spokesperson for Insulate Britain, the capacity in which he joins us today. It's a frank, free-ranging conversation about the different narratives dominating the climate movement and what actions remain to us in such an immobilized society. Whether Insulate Britain's methods are effective is a question I'll leave to the listener, along with, hopefully, a sense of urgency that new things need to be tried. Bing joined me on our call wearing what looked like seven or so layers of clothing, so I can at least attest to his heat retention credentials. I really do hope you enjoy our talk. All right, Dr. Jones, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, Alec. Thank you very much for asking me to come along. Absolutely a pleasure. So first of all, who are you? You know, tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get involved with Insulate Britain? Okay, so I'm a retired doctor. I also am an artist and I've always been concerned about the environment. I got involved with Extinction Rebellion several years ago. I uh, have become a bit of a a full-time activist, really. Uh, I've been arrested lots of times. I've helped coordinate a big group here in Sheffield, in Yorkshire, where I live. And then Insulate Britain came along and gave the option really to be more forceful. Uh, I think what's always struck me is that the problem is dire and what's being done is clearly not anything like enough in terms of scale or pace. And Insulate Britain came up with an idea whereby obviously large scale disruption was going to take place in a relatively short period of time and people would go to prison. And that that appealed to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree more on the, the direness of the situation. Just to uh, regroup for our listeners, what is Insulate Britain and what are their aims specifically? Okay, so Insulate Britain is a, a relatively small group of people that have evolved out of uh, Extinction Rebellion. Most of us have been uh, in Extinction Rebellion with an idea to make a demand of the government that they more or less immediately insulate all social housing and within a five-year period set out a plan within a few months to retrofit all UK homes. So the essence is to try to find a a no-brainer, win-win-win issue which is the insulation of the UK's homes, make a demand of the government. And if they don't meet the demand, then make large scale disruption, so much disruption that there'll be a lot of publicity. And the main mechanism at the time was thought that we would be able to get large numbers of people in prison during the COP26 process to embarrass the government into exposing its failure, its failure to meet its own targets, for instance. And the key thing about insulation is in the UK, it can reduce emissions by at least 15%. If we actually got done what we demanded, there would be a substantial reduction in um, the UK's carbon emissions. Uh, We would make hundreds of thousands of really good, lasting, levelling up jobs. So the the idea is that these things should all be politically acceptable. But the biggest thing is that we would lift millions of people out of fuel poverty. 
So in Scotland, for instance, one in four people lives in fuel poverty. This is a real crime. And around eight and a half thousand people die every winter from cold related illness. You've got a win-win-win with emissions, good jobs, and lifting people out of fuel poverty. So almost everybody is going to agree with the aims. And it was quite clear that people were not going to agree with the means. But the idea is to push this issue, this dilemma, push that into people's faces. For sure. I read through some of the Insular Britain publications and, and I was shocked by just how much of Britain's emissions come directly from heating houses during the winter. It's it's an incredible figure. And, and I do absolutely agree with you. It's a no-brainer. So on the one hand, I think people look at Insulate Britain and say, it's been incredibly successful. It's such a small group of people that, for a lot of us at least, came out of nowhere in the early fall and was able to quickly create such attention for, for such a central issue. But then on the other hand, uh, you look at some polling numbers and if you survey the general population, there is much broader opposition to insulate Britain than to its actual objectives or environmental objectives. I, I read a, a YouGov poll saying that, you know, in mid-September, 59% of Brighton's opposed uh, insulate Britain, but by early October, that had increased to 72%. Is this popularity a concern for you guys? Do you think that kind of the attention is more important than the agreement? How would you counter argue people who say you might actually be damaging the cause you're trying to support? Well, Alec, the first thing to be said is that nobody expected this to be popular. Second thing to be said is that any major social shifts are going to be unpopular. Third thing to be said is that any serious activism is almost certainly going to be unpopular. Martin Luther King was hated throughout most of his lifetime. But afterwards, he's lauded as a kind of a saint with a, a national holiday. The suffragettes smashed every single window in Oxford Street. They were hated at the time. They, they made people feel radically uncomfortable. But how many women would question that they have a, a right to vote now? Through Gandhi, all of these activism stories runs this same theme of disruption, unpopularity, and highlighting a major issue. And to be honest, making environmental protests unpopular is not an issue. Environmental protest is not doing the job. Emissions are continuing to rise. Governments are continuing to fail, even to meet their own measly, weasley, awful targets. The fossil fuel industry is trillions of dollars. BP made one and a half billion dollars profit every month, the last three months of 2021. There's just an enormous strength behind maintaining the status quo. And, and the fact is that the environmental movement is not having the effect that's required. We need to cut emissions by 50%. You know all this, your audience knows this. In a few years, we need to increase energy efficiency by 50% in a few years. We're not even vaguely getting there, are we? So something else needs to be done. And this is an argument for civil resistance. I can see that not everybody's going to do it. I'm really glad that you're in an academic department thinking about these things. I'm glad that the Green Party's there. In Sheffield, we've increased our Green Party councillors from three to 13. You know, that's great. It's fantastic. But we're looking at an environmental crisis that's going to change the future of humanity. 
And if we don't act in a few years, well, we've already gone past irreversible tipping points. So what is a thinking person to do? What are you going to do with your life, Alec? Are you going to go and get yourself a nice, comfortable job in a university where you can draw a nice salary and go on doing small amounts of work and present them to people who then ignore your information? What are you going to do? So I'm, I'm a caring person. I've been a doctor all my life uh, and I'm stuck. Somehow making a real fuss, sitting on a motorway, telling everybody to, to, to stop, just stop and think a bit. And if necessary, going to prison, that seems an, an honorable thing to do. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that parallel you draw to the civil rights movement, both with arrest as a tactic, but also with the polling numbers. That's a really good point. I remember hearing a, a couple of weeks ago that MLK, just before his assassination, was, I think, 75% unpopular with Americans. Uh, so from, from that perspective, the, <laughs> the polling numbers align pretty well for you guys. But why, why arrest specifically as a tactic? What is the usefulness of putting your activists in prison? Uh, good question. Good question. I, there's, there's a historical precedent, but mostly what we're talking about is desperation. Uh, and I, I don't know quite why more people aren't desperate. That's what it comes down to. I've tried absolutely everything. I've written loads of articles. I've given lectures. I've sat outside the parliament. I've lobbied MPs. I've been a member of Extinction Rebellion and been parts of very large demonstrations with thousands of people. And as far as I'm concerned, they, they're clearly making some progress, but it is nothing. I mean, you guys should understand the maths. The maths are just frightening, right? And we're not doing anything at the scale and pace required, are we? And emissions are continuing to rise. Airports are continuing talking about expansion. Coal is not being cut back. There are just so many indices which are not changing. And the only way for us to make a real contribution is to be radical. So very big things need to change. And it may be that they will be changed by polite, nice people. It's possible. It may be that the next big election, the green people will be elected universally and in six months we'll have changed the whole thing. But is that what you think is going to happen? I, I, I can't see it. Personally, no, no, I'm in, incredibly distressed by the numbers. You know, we're running out of time and our direction of travel is so far from where it needs to be. It's really difficult and I, I sympathize a lot with the struggle of what to do when faced with a, an a system that's so incumbent. And it's this hostage situation where oil companies, fossil fuel interests, many politicians try to kind of negotiate with the movement where it's, you know, we'll go along with you a certain ways, but only if you play nice. And so some people very much take the approach of cooperation in that sense and view compromise as necessary. And I guess you would be on the other end of the spectrum advocating a, a no compromise solution, which frankly, with whatever it is, nine years left in our carbon budget, I really do see the case that there is no time for compromise. Yeah. So small steps are death, aren't they? Totally. Incremental change is suicide. It's not going to work. And there's a great deal of social theory to suggest that things change non-linearly. So there could be a very sudden change. And if you have the feeling that the majority of people in Western societies are really concerned about the environment, but the, the government is not doing anything about it, 
and the fossil fuel industries uh, and all the other commercial interests are looking after the status quo. It is possible that suddenly social views could change and, and suddenly politicians could be forced into changing legislation and that change could happen very suddenly. I mean, that's what I hope and pray for. But for that to happen, you need to have very large numbers of people suddenly changing their views. And the essence is that we're all very, very comfortable. You're comfortable. You're in a university. You've got some kind of funding. And we, we all come from um, backgrounds where, where comfort is sort of assumed. But the fact is that there's nothing comfortable about the environmental challenge. And there's nothing comfortable, really, about the solution. The solutions have to be fast. They have to be understood by very large numbers of people. And they need to be massive. It is a wartime effort. And the United States in, in three years from 1942 after Pearl Harbor just changed radically. They jackhammered up all the machines that made cars and started making tanks. They increased the national borrowing tenfold or something. I think the US government borrowed more in three years than they'd ever borrowed before. People were not allowed to buy new cars. So in three years, the American economy just changed rapidly into a completely different economy. That's the kind of thing that's required. But the question is how we get there. As far as I'm concerned, doing things incrementally on a small scale, politely, it's not going to happen. We're going to have to wait until some really major problem happens. If, if there was a, an enormous series of floods or something, or if the migrants, instead of being a thousand coming over in a day, were 10,000 coming across from France, then that might change things. But the climate problem is a slow thing. And by the time something like that happens, it's probably going to be too late. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really apt metaphor. Also, a lot of allied countries during the war passed uh, incredibly swift and to a degree lasting tax reform early in the war to fund all that. But I think climate is almost by definition a long-term issue and there is no Pearl Harbor. You know, countries, wealthy countries, developing countries have experienced disasters that are clearly linked to climate change. In Canada, for instance, last summer, record highs were reached and there were towns in a usually temperate region going up in, in flame. But that still hasn't created a response in the same way that a kind of attack does. It just doesn't seem to encourage the same sort of urgency in people. Is that an urgency that you and your organization are trying to create? Do you foresee something that could engineer it in the population? Well, I don't know. There's the answer to that is I don't know. But I do know that being inactive or being polite or being just going on with what we've, we've done before is not going to work. Definition of madness is going on doing what doesn't work. So being radical has worked in the past. Being really disruptive has worked in the past. We are very, very media dominated. Our whole society is very media dominated. So we have to somehow get into the media to get some kind of response. So I don't know. I don't know what's right. I'm constantly challenged and my family find it very difficult what I do. And it's risky. Everything's risky. But the, the essence of the risk, again, we, we seem to have a mathematical paralysis. The Chatham House report on the 14th of September, I think it was, on risk management, made some very clear statements that we only have a 5% chance with our present policies of keeping global warming below two degrees and only a 1% chance of keeping warming below 
So we've got a 95% chance of disaster. And yet we're just going on with business as usual. It just seems crazy that thinking people seem to be able to accept risks, which are so enormous. Even if the risks were only one-tenth of that, it would be still like putting your child on a plane with a one in 10 chance of crashing. It's just crazy. I find it very hard to reconcile what I'm going to do next with what seems like a kind of an intellectual and moral paralysis. So something radical feels to me to be the best thing. And I I would love it if every single environmental scientist and everybody from Imperial College came and sat on the road. Wouldn't that be a powerful thing? Absolutely. I think incorporating activism into the the population and, and academia more broadly is definitely important. And I really do think that trying new things, trying everything is essential at this stage. I almost, I hesitate to use the word radical when I look at these climate activism movements, because in the face of such a clear and present and existential danger, inaction is in many ways the radical thing to do. I was wondering, you know, as someone who's maybe very, very in the early stages of considering arrest as a contribution to the cause. What is that experience like? What does the process look like for you? How does it feel? Okay, well, I I got arrested first. I've actually lost count of the number of times I've been arrested. So (laughs) I, I can tell you, it becomes relatively straightforward. We're incredibly privileged in this country. We have a highly disciplined, well trained, regulated police force. It varies a bit. And it's getting harder than it was but basically we have an enormous privilege so getting arrested for me the first time was an enormous liberation i got a picture a reporter took of me being put into a police van the very first time got the most enormous grin on my face right i'm i was relieved because i've spent decades for most of my life worrying about the environment it just seemed to me to be just terribly worrying so that was an enormous sense of relief and each time that i am arrested I have been arrested. I have felt a certain amount of relief. But the trouble is that there's a kind of an inflation process going on here. The activism seems to have to do more to get the same amount of media coverage. So the business of going to prison, as the Freedom Riders did when they were trying to um, take black and white people on those interstate buses and eventually did change the law in the United States in the 60s to, um, to abolish segregation. They were beaten, they were, you know, the ambulances refused to come, and they went to prison. And you look back and you think those were the only honourable people. So where were all the other people? Everybody else was happy, presumably, more or less happy with the situation. So I think arrest is essential. We're actually living in a crazy society. Arrest is not good if you're living in a law-abiding, comfortable, nice society where everybody's being looked after. Alec, we're not. And we're living in a society that's dominated by material considerations. We, we seem to be obsessed with comfort and status. It's death. So there, there is something logical about going to prison if you're in a situation where all the ordinary rules are being broken and nobody's doing anything about it. Many people would say the government is treasonous for not looking after the population by insulation and proper management of the climate crisis. So, yeah, going to prison is sometimes the only honourable option. Yeah, I, I think that's a, 
fair assessment. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening, mom and dad. I think that's really interesting, the upwards and inflationary pressure that you feel in the activist movement. And I guess my question would be, what's next? If what's been done so far has been, you know, to an extent effective in raising attention, but loses its salience. Well, all I can hope for is the fact that there is uh, an inherent understanding of the climate crisis sort of latent in everybody. So my hope, my fingers are crossed, that ordinary people whose main priority is their family, their children, that they are increasingly getting worried. At the moment, they are still booking their holidays to fly to Spain. They're still buying things made in China without thinking about the fact that the emissions are actually going to kill their children or potentially kill other people's children. But eventually, I am hoping that with lots of different stimuli, people will change. And I'm hoping that there will be a non-linear change. So suddenly, everybody will start to think, whoops, we've got to do something. And they then might, they might vote for politicians who will say, I'm sorry, we need petrol rationing. I mean, we do need fuel rationing. There's no I'm sure there are some people in your department who would argue that we don't need fuel rushing. But as far as I'm concerned, you need something like that. The maths is pretty clear. We need to absolutely stop burning things. And for people to get to the point where they're willing to vote for politicians who are willing to enforce that, that's where we've got to get to. I, I don't know, but I think that if a nice young man like you went to prison, that, that, that is something. Right. I don't know if it's the best thing. And it's certainly I'm not going to recommend it for you because it certainly isn't for everybody. Prison is horrible. Uh, and just being arrested is horrible. Being locked in a, in, a, in a police cell, being stuck in the back of a police van with handcuffs on is horrible. I am so sad that the end of my life is not spent looking after my grandchildren and I have to go around being locked up in police stations. I, it's just sad. But it is a fact that things are really bad. So. I personally think that we have to stress to people, firstly, that things are worse than most people realise. And secondly, that what needs to be done is really big, really big chunks of stuff. And it's going to involve change, radical change. I, I mean, I, I would say that you are taking care of your grandchildren just in a, in a maybe less direct or less obvious way. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you feel that, and I'm, I'm so appreciative of the personal sacrifices that that process takes. I, I guess my, my wonder is, is just from a tactical perspective, this is an action that feels pretty radical and self-sacrificial, but if it's still not generating the kind of awareness or, or urgency, what do you think people will do next? Will, will they start setting themselves on fire? Will you know, will a, a, a radical flank or a, a militant movement emerge? What does this look like going forward? There are authors like Andreas Mann wondering why there is not a more radical flank to the environmental movement when that's proven so necessary in other areas of social change. Do you think that'll emerge and what do you think it'll look like? It's a very good question. And there are a lot of people that discuss this. A lot of the environmental movements in the United Kingdom, and particularly the ones which I've been involved with, have stressed non-violence. But the definition of non-violence is very difficult. And the fact is that the violence is being done by petrochemical companies. They are the violent people. 
they are causing millions of people to be displaced right now. They are causing floods and fires. That tornado that ripped through the US is, I think, I read somewhere that it was probably going to cost $63 billion or something. This is violence. It's, it's corporate legal violence. So, yes, I think that that does raise the question as to whether or not people should be violent. The definition of violence and nonviolence is, again, a spectrum. And there are people in Extinction Rebellion who have smashed very large windows in, in the posh offices of these fuel companies uh, and banks. There are all sorts of people who have blocked pipelines. And yes, I personally think that that is something which is possibly going to come. But I wish it didn't have to. Why, why should it? Why can't we all be a little more sensible? The ideal would be to have a large scale civil resistance whereby millions of people sat on the road. Recently, hundreds of thousands of people in Serbia, I think it was Serbia, blocked a motorway and changed the government's authorization of a, a large mineral exploitation, which was going to damage large numbers of people. So big groups of people doing nonviolent disruption can have an effect. So that's my sales pitch. I think your question is sound. Uh, I think that there is probably a place for more extreme actions. And I think if the government fails to act, then that probably will come. But one of the sadnesses about modern politics is the business of division. And to have a, a group of people who are really seen as being very, very bad could be destructive. So I don't know quite what the answer is, but the real problem is, is the business as usual. That's where the violence is, and that's where we need to be looking at it in a different way. Yeah, shifting our definition of violence is going to be really central because you put carbon up into the air and that carbon creates a, a disaster or, or a, a drought or difficult living conditions that kill someone. And you do not feel like you are directly doing harm in the way you would if you were to strike a person, but it, it can be just as lethal. I was reading this really interesting paper recently about the mortality cost of carbon. And it calculated that roughly 4,000 tons of CO2 emissions uh, will result in a death over the course of the century, which I found so helpful in contextualizing uh, with, with each decision you take, you know, what percentage of someone else's life are you likely to be taking away? I think it, it's going to be really important to changing how people start to look at this issue. Yeah. And the, the difficulty is that, I mean, it would be lovely, wouldn't it, if we could have a kind of a, a carbon death rating on everything that we buy. So if we went on a holiday, there was a, you have, you fly here, you killed two people, you buy this new lawnmower, you killed half a person. That would be very good. But that won't be enough, will it? We, we have to have really, really big changes, which need to be done really quickly. And those changes have to be done by paradigm shifts in terms of government. And I don't know how those are going to happen. I worry that I, I really cannot envisage how those massive changes are going to happen. I can see how incremental small things, logical, comfortable, changeable things could happen. I could see how people, when they go to B&Q, say, oh, I'm not going to buy that lawnmower because it's going to kill three people. Instead, I'll buy this lawnmower, which is only going to kill half a person. I can see that, but I don't think it's going to happen quickly enough or radically enough. And anyway, there probably has to be a law saying, sorry, no more lawnmowers. 
all right, until we can build lawnmowers without killing anybody, there's no more lawnmowers. I let the grass grow, right? That's my picture. So I'm all for radical things. I'm sorry. I think enough people sitting in the road, stopping very large numbers of other people, forcing other people to see what's happening is at least part of the way forward. Civil resistance. <laughs> um, I definitely think it's an ingredient. It's just difficult because you're right, banning certain products, just to, to put the numbers in perspective, I, I think the lawnmower wouldn't quite get up to killing half a person, but but a, a very small and tangible fraction, you know, it definitely could constitute that, but it's politically impossible. No politician, not even a green politician in a green constituency that runs on the banned lawnmowers platform is, is going to last a day. Yeah. We have a whole system, don't we? The whole system is predicated on our steadily increasing comfort. And that has been fueled by fossil fuels. And I am who I am. And, and I have had a massively privileged life on the back of fossil fuels. But right now, that really is killing people. You might not be able to do the sums to get the lawnmower to kill half a person. The problem is that we it's narratives, isn't it? We're telling each other stories all the time. You tell yourself a story, I suspect, when you get up in the morning and you go to learn at your university course, you tell yourself a story that you're doing a good job and that you're going to solve the world's problems and that you're an honourable person and you deserve your porridge, right? But I'm trying to tell you a different story, which is, which is we are fucked, right? I'm sorry to be blunt to your audience, but we're in real trouble. And until we start telling stories which are much harder, stories like the picture of some of these insulate Britain people going to prison. There's an old chap who's actually a doctor who I know who got ink splashed in his face sitting in the road, right? That's a different kind of story. It's a story of people hating the idea of change. And it's a story of other people saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I don't want to have to do this, but these are the facts. It's frightening. I'm frightened. Come on. We've all got to do something about it. And I'm hopeful. We're all hopeful. And we can all see a lovely green city. I can see a time where there's no cars outside my house and my grandchildren can play football in the road. That's what I want. I'd be quite happy to have literally one tenth of the income. I'm sitting in this studio here and the temperature is 11 degrees and I've got lots of clothes on and I'm fine. Right. I've got pneumonia. Yeah. Okay, we need a different story, different narrative. I don't know what that narrative needs to be. It's going to be different for different people, but it's got to be really different. Sure. And, and I personally, I, I don't tell myself I'm going to, to save the world anymore. I'm, I'm just trying to find a career where I don't do additional harm. I wanted to ask about um, your medical background. You know, climate is such an, an intersectional health issue. Do you find your career in medicine has brought you here? How does it map on to your, your activism currently? Yeah, well, it certainly is a very big bit of it. And yeah, I've spent my life trying to make people better. And I look around and I see that so many systems are just making people worse. The climate crisis is going to be, well, it already is primarily a health crisis. That's the first point. The, the knocking on everybody's door will be a health issue. COVID is the climate crisis. COVID is almost certainly a virus that escaped from animal populations at some stage who are being increasingly squeezed tighter and tighter and tighter. So much of the world's 
wildlife is being forced into a tiny, tiny area, right? And, and then we've made it worse, haven't we, by all of our silly habits of flying around, mixing so much travel has, has made it worse. So COVID is the start, but the health implications of the climate crisis are just myriad. They're absolutely everywhere. People will die from heat. Talking about that nearly 50 degrees in Canada. We've had nearly 50 degrees in Southern Europe, in Australia. People can't live above 50 degrees. You certainly can't work. That means compulsory migration. And that means societal collapse. The percentage of the world with no decent health service is going to increase rapidly. So A, I'm a doctor. I want to look after people. So that's what my activism is. But B, I'm ashamed of my medical colleagues. I've written loads in the British Medical Journal. I've written, and you know, even the BMJ, bless them, who are pretty climate aware, they even insist on taking bits out of the articles that I write to make them polite. Nobody wants to ruffle anybody's feathers, but the climate is going to rip us apart. It's just crazy. So, yeah, the medical analogy is very sound. I think that if we're really caring, we should act and we should not be bystanders. You know, we should not be like the Pharisees and the Good Samaritan story. We shouldn't walk by on the other side. But I think that I'm sorry, the professions are walking by on the other side. I think the climate science community has remained silent. It's basically given bland facts in the face of politics who are going to frankly abuse them. And the medical profession has been the same. The medical profession has been far too polite, not stood up for itself and not stood up for its patients. I see what you're saying. I think it's really difficult because as soon as scientists try to present their facts in a more accessible way, they're accused of oversimplifying. As soon as they try to really carry through the sensational nature of their sensational findings. They're accused of alarmism. Finding the communication balance is really difficult. And I think, yeah, there, there definitely has been some caution. But when you lose that caution, you open yourself up to a, a whole different range of attacks. Um, one thing that I think Insulate Britain does so well is, you know, there are these issues uh, like mass migration or, or droughts or heat waves that get your pulse going. But a lot of progress toward climate goals involves unsexy things like insulation. How do you think that we can kind of turn these into uh, the exciting, important topics that they ought to be? Well, that's a really good question. If I had the answer to that, I'd be off doing it. Um, <laughs> okay. But I suspect that probably we'll just have to move on. And I'm now part of a, a, a sort of a, a next thing, which is called Just Stop Oil. So I think probably activism is a process that we have to be a bit honest about. It tends to go in bursts. You have a burst of energy and then people get tired. It needs to be reinvented all the time. So I don't know quite what the answer is, but I do know that we do need to tell different stories to catch different parts of the public imagination to get large numbers of people to realise what's happening. Making non-sexy issues sexy, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's helpful to identify issues which large numbers of people can come around. And the insulation thing has just been so topical, hasn't it? There are literally, I think probably... The standard figures are around 8,000 people die of cold-related disease in the UK. That figure is probably going to leap this winter, or certainly by next winter, because of the price of gas going up. All of these things are interwoven, and 
hopefully one strikes lucky at some stage and people will begin to realize i suspect that in a few months time there'll be so much publicity about the dilemma of food or fuel that people will actually start thinking hey god those people sitting on the motorway they actually did have a point so i'm hopeful that insulate britain may not have changed the government's plan already but i think it's already planted a seed which might just grow in the public imagination and i shall certainly go on looking for other narratives and other activism in the future which will do similar things i, I wish you the best of luck we just like to wrap up with recommendations you know you're a painter are there any pieces of environmental art or music or podcasts that you think our audience should give a go all i can say is that i i mostly paint people but i also paint landscapes i just want to have a a world which is worth painting and in terms of podcasts one of the problems is that we're in these bubbles aren't we so if you start signing up for a, a podcast or you follow somebody on Twitter, you end up in this self-affirming world, don't you? So I would say we need to get out of that. We need to get away from the podcasts which talk to us about things we know. And we need to get into the podcasts that we don't like and then getting a bit angry about them, maybe. Okay, so that's a slightly <laughs> different line. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to publish an, an anti-podcast opinion here, but we'll <laughs> see if we can sneak it through. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Jones, and have a great day. Best of luck. Bye. A world worth painting. Difficult to squeeze into the show notes, but I have trouble arguing with that. Hopefully we fit Dr. Jones' criterion as a podcast that challenges you. If not, let us know what you don't know, or maybe even don't want to hear about sustainability, and we'll go try to dig up some experts. I left that conversation with a lot of reflecting to do. What do you think it would take to really wake people up to the level of change necessary in facing our climate crisis? Will this winter's fuel crunch cause a big shift in thinking? And how would you feel about a price in fractions of a life taken by climate-related causes on the label of consumer products? Maybe next to where they put the kilograms of CO2 produced on Google Flights. I'll take the liberty of linking that study from Nature on the mortality cost of carbon, it's really helped me put emissions into perspective recently. You can also find the links for Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil down there in the show notes if you're looking to get involved. I know Just Stop Oil is hosting a lot of meetings online and in person across the UK this February. I'm excited to see what they'll manage in the coming months. Anyway, that's it for me. Thanks as always for tuning in to the Green Minds podcast. We'll see you next week.